Good evening, Grace Downtown family and friends. My name is Pastor Glenn Hoberg, and I'm coming to you today from our church office because of an impending ice storm. But nonetheless, uh, so glad to be with you and to share in this abbreviated worship service and glad to be starting a new series with you, which we're calling Jesus's Bible. Now, the personal libraries or the legacy libraries of notable men and women have always been of interest to us. We want to know what formed their mind, formed their thoughts. Listen to some of the contents of one such library. The Iliad, Orations, Cosmos, a sketch of the physical description of the universe, the science of politics, the rise of the Dutch Republic, the history of dental art, missionary travels and researches in South Africa, 12 years a slave, Bleak House, how to avoid losses in Wall Street, and the English Bible. Those all come from Frederick Douglass's legacy library. Now, for any Christian, and even those who may not be, Jesus Christ is a notable figure in history. And we might want to ask ourselves, what would be in his personal library? What formed his thought? Well, I've got good news for you. We can know. Uh, as one theologian, Frederick Bruner, puts it, the Old Testament was Jesus's personal library. It was his shelf of books. The only clips we get of Jesus in his youth is his sitting with the Bible teachers, asking and answering questions about these books. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels reveals a remarkable prior immersion in Scripture. Thus, in owning an Old Testament, we have the exciting privilege of owning Jesus' personal library. Now, I think as we hear that, um, uh, we feel... Uh, a bit of a, a tension, a disconnection, if we're honest. Now, if you were raised in the church, when you think of the Old Testament, it may be uh, stories like David, King David, and Esther and Daniel, or the Psalms come to mind, and you think of them fondly and favorably. But there's also those parts of the Old Testament that get a basic meh from us. They seem irrelevant hard to interpret, maybe even offensive. The wars, the strict laws, uh, a depiction of women. For countless reasons, we find ourselves going, I don't know what I think about the Old Testament. In fact, I've had many people say that before. And so we have that, and yet, on the other hand, we find Jesus not only constantly referring and quoting from the Old Testament with reverence, but we find it in his dying words we find his explicit affirmation of it. In fact, he says to a few disciples in Luke 24, you can't understand me, my life, or my ministry apart from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. My ministry, he would go on to say in Matthew 5, uh, will be a fulfillment of every dot and every stroke and every letter of the Old Testament. So what do we do with that? Well, it really gets into a theological topic, 
that is deep and we can only touch on in what is called the continuity or unity of the scriptures. Now, when you lay the Old Testament and the New Testament side by side, the one hand there is contrast, and we learn from the contrasts that are shown. For instance, when the Apostle Paul contrasts the law of Moses with uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the book of Hebrews compares uh, Moses over against Jesus Christ. We learn from these contrasts. Yet, when you look at the two scriptures together, the Old Testament and New Testament, what we find, though, is the connectedness and the unity is far more fundamental, far more in agreement, which means if you and I have any hope of understanding Jesus Christ, who he was, his ministry, his life, his sacrifice, it will have to be through understanding Jesus's Bible, the Bible that formed him. And the Gospel of Matthew is a wonderful place for us to spend time considering Jesus's Bible because it's a gospel that was written to Jewish followers of Christ and refers many times to the Old Testament and to Israel. It grants us access and insight to how Jesus thought but also how he relied upon his Bible in his most desperate moments. For instance, his temptation. So let's look at that particular passage right now. This comes from Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, <clears throat> lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took, to, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Would you right now open our eyes into uh, your love for your word, Lord? We pray that you might uh, give us life and hope, even as we study and read it. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> now, in these temptations, uh, the devil, rather than tempting Jesus to something that we would regard as blatantly wicked or evil, tempts him, rather, to uh, the misuse of good things to use good things in a self-interested way 
to take a shortcut to a happy ending. And it raises a question for us, uh, what temptations in our lives aren't so much toward things that would be uh, corrupted and obviously evil, but rather good things in our lives that we want to turn to rather than turning to God. For instance, with Jesus's temptation, who could argue food is not a good thing when you're hungry? It is. But if it's something you desire more than trusting in the provision of God, it can become a sin. Or in the case of Jesus, protection is a good thing, but if you make it the ultimate sign of whether or not God loves you, well, then it's not such a good thing. Or lastly, fulfilling your calling is a good thing. In Jesus's case, ruling the world as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But to take a shortcut to that path would not be a good thing. And so in this study, we see uh, the enemy tempting him along those lines. But rather than focus on the temptations themselves, I want us to focus on the response that Jesus has through the word of God and how it shows the way he would approach God's word as he faced temptation and trial. <clears throat> and let's do that through three different ways, uh, looking at uh, the connection that Jesus's Bible gave him to the people of God, the connection it gave him to the story of God, and the connection it gave him to the deliverance of God. So let's look at those three things together. First of all, how Jesus's Bible gave him connection to the people of God. Uh, we continue in our day and age to uh, have interest in genealogies, don't we? You have shows like Finding Your Roots, and uh, you have maybe done one of those uh, surveys or searches to see how you're connected. And it's fun, but I also think it's a response to the, the climate we live in. That is, uh, we live in a day of such radical individualism. People are hungry to know that uh, they belong to a people. You see, Jesus understood he not only belonged to God, he belonged to the people of God, something bigger than just himself. In a, in a time where uh, we are so me-centered in our identity, we also need to know that we are group-centered, people-centered. And of course, Christians aren't immune to this. Many times Christians think about their relationship to God, mostly with my personal relationship to God, and not so much to the people of God. And when we do think about community in terms of church, it can be uh, marked by conditionalism and seeing it almost like an elective, meaning if my community no longer has uh, my age and stage, or if my, this community doesn't reflect my politics, doesn't reflect, reflect my cultural desires, if the community is something that no longer is meeting my needs, well, then I'll just go to a different community. But when you belong to a people, that's different, right? We can think about our own extended families. There may be things that drive us crazy about our extended families and our immediate families, and we're probably one of those things that drive other people crazy. But why don't we just get up and leave? Well, because we belong to a people, not just uh, an interest group or a community. And uh, this then uh, plays into a few different ways that Jesus thought about the people of God. 
First of all, as I said, Jesus understood that he not only belonged to God, but he belonged to the people of God. Second of all, his connection to the people of God wasn't just casual, it was vital and critical to his faithfulness. We see that in this temptation, especially when you're in the wilderness, feeling alone, vulnerable, and without support. What does Jesus do the moment that he's tempted? He refers to the experience of Israel, the people of God, and their testing. It's often the case in the Old Testament that God will test his people. The book of Deuteronomy would say, so he can see what's in our hearts. Well, you find that in the case with, uh, with Abraham, as he's tested to leave his people, to leave his support group, to Joseph, where he's wrenched away from his support group and his people to be put in prison, where the story of Ruth, who finds herself as a widow, separated from her people, her husband, and it's a mark of the wilderness that we find ourselves longing for connection with people. And maybe you have felt that recently. Maybe it's a real loss you experienced. Maybe it's the ache of desiring a mate. Maybe it's uh, feeling like uh, I'm the only person that struggles with this chronic illness. No one else my age uh, has problems like this. It could be an addiction or just the isolation of the pandemic. You see, one of the common tactics of the devil is to isolate and destroy people. And you find that Jesus counters this by reflecting on his people's experience. One, why does Jesus do this? He does it, first of all, for our benefit, because just as Israel stumbled and sinned through their wilderness and failed to trust God, and as you and I stumble and sin through our wilderness experiences, failing to trust God, he would be the faithful one. He would be the faithful Israelite, the faithful believer that would trust God. So on our behalf, we would know that through Jesus Christ, even in the wilderness, we can have a standing with God that is secure and favorable. Second of all, as Jesus identifies with the people of God, he identifies with their temptations of the things they need to face. The book of Hebrews says that he is a high priest that's been tempted in every respect, every manner like we are. And of course, it's not just temptation, it's trial. The book of James says that temptation and trial often go hand in hand. One of the ways that the African-American church um, models and excelled during uh, the oppression that they dealt with under slavery and Jim Crow was to identify with Israel in Egypt in bondage. As uh, they understood, listen, uh, this experience that we're having isn't isolated. We're part of a people that has been oppressed by bondage. We are part of a people like Israel in Egypt. Now, ironically, their oppressors didn't see that. Ironically, the oppressors had an opposite view. They understood themselves to be uh, different, disconnected from the people of God, disconnected from uh, the global, the racial, the ethnic people of God for all time. And that then uh, led them to see themselves as superior and oppressing 
the people of God. But thirdly, what we see in these temptations is that we are not alone in temptation. As I said, one of the big trials is that in the wilderness, we feel like we are isolated and the enemy seeks to destroy us. This is why we get so easily discouraged in the wilderness, discouraged as we're facing the struggles we have. We will uh, rarely succeed with our temptation in the wilderness if we just do it by ourselves. Maybe for a short time we can, but it's as we bring our temptations into the light of the people of God, we find that we're not alone, that other people struggle with us, that other people don't run away when they hear our struggles. And so when we understand that we are connected to the people of God like Jesus did, we find ourselves having company and strength during our times of temptation. So connection with the people of God. The second thing that Jesus gets from his Bible is being connected to the story of God. Recently, uh, my wife Meg and I were visiting a family in the church and their son was eager to show me a special book that actually someone in the church had given him. And the reason it was special was because he was in the book, he was in the story. You may have seen these things before where you can get a custom made book and your name appears in the storyline. His did, his dad did, and the person that uh, gave him the book was in the storyline as well, and he was excited. Well, Jesus understands himself to be in the story of God. Do you? It makes all the difference. How do we see this with Jesus? Well, in his first temptation with food, Jesus recalls Deuteronomy 8, when Israel was hungry in the desert. And he understands it's just not meaningless that he's hungry in the desert. God hasn't forsaken him. We're told in Deuteronomy 8, God wanted to see what was in the heart of his people. In the second temptation, Jesus refers to Israel after the Red Sea, after the sign of the Red Sea, when they had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt. But soon after they doubt and demand another sign Jesus has just gone through his water, his water baptism. And there, there was a great sign. The father said, this is my son whom I love. But now the tempter is trying to say, you need another sign. That sign wasn't good enough. Throw yourself off the temple and God will save you. Then that will be the sign. You and I many times uh, feel like we need a sign to prove that God is faithful and cares for us. When the sign, the ultimate sign is the cross the self-giving of the Son of God. There could be no greater sign. We could have a wish list and say, God, I'll know you love me if you give me this, and if you give me that, and if you give me that, but it'll never answer that question. It's only when we understand that God gave himself for our sin as our atonement for our guilt, that we understand that sign is faithfulness. And the third temptation uh, is about turning to false gods to get your happy ending. The enemy's trying to uh, tempt Jesus to short circuit. Of course, he would rule the worlds and have world and have all the kingdom, but he's tempted to take a shortcut past suffering to glory. Just like you and I might take a shortcut with our integrity to try to get some sort of happy ending. Now, what's the point of all this? 
It's this that Jesus processes his temptation through the story of God. If you and I are trying to navigate our temptations with our own thoughts and our own intellect and our own narrative, we'll never be able to do it. Even the Son of God, who could speak the Word of God, who was God of God, what do we find? Him relying upon the scriptures that he learned as a child, the scriptures that he immersed himself in. That's where he goes in his time of temptation. He processes his trials and his hardships through the story of God. He goes to his Bible, and he knows it so well when the enemy tries to quote Psalm 91 and twist it, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't just have a proof texting understanding of his Bible, where he has a life verse or just a couple passages he likes or a favorite part. He understands it so well that he can counter deception. He can counter false teaching. He's connected to the story of God through his Bible. But lastly, he's also connected to the deliverance of God through his Bible. Again, Frederick Bruner has, I think, insight here. He says, when Jesus confronts the devil, he puts him down by means of a book. If Jesus finds his way into ministry and through temptation by remembering scripture, the church should not think she can find better ways. Jesus identifies himself with human beings as he says, man does not live by bread alone. The deep famine of the world is a famine known or unknown for the word of God. Jesus finds God's word literally nourishing him. Somehow it's so deep it can reach him in the stomach. Real life is a trusting feeding on God's word. Now there's a lot that he says there. One, again, he doesn't rely on his own thoughts or words, and if anybody could do that, it would be Jesus. But rather, as he faces temptation, he goes back to the scripture he knows. Second of all, we see is that Jesus gets the victory from the very same resource by which you and I can get the victory. He models that for you and I. The scriptures say, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And this gets to a mysterious and marvelous thing about the living word of God, that in the face of our wilderness and our want, and I'd ask you, what are you hungry for right now? It's on your mind regularly. You find yourself going there, especially in your times of disappointment. It's your happy ending. What are you hungry for? Do you believe that the word of God can actually stand in for that? Do you believe that the living word of God can actually fill your empty belly? It's amazing, but that's what Jesus does. Jesus turns to God in his need and finds that the word of God can take up that space. And so, even in this first view of the way Jesus understood his Bible, we see fundamental things. A connection to the people of God, a connection to the story of God, and a connection to the deliverance of God. Let us begin there, like Christ. Would you pray with me? We do thank you for your living word, Lord. And we pray that you might give us um, a zeal and a hunger for it, just like Christ our Savior. We ask it in his name. 
Amen.